0: Well, I've got some good news and some bad news. Yeah. The good news is God is on the throne. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Amen. The bad news is next Sunday is daylight savings time. How many knew that? Yeah. I didn't. Starla and I were talking about this morning. I said, hey, when is daylight savings time? She goes, I don't know. I said, well, I think it's the end of the month. And so I asked the purveyor of all knowledge, Google, (laughs) and they said it was March 8th. And so that's next Sunday. So react accordingly. (laughs) Set your clocks up and um, be with us. Spring forward. If you would, get your Bibles, your iPhones, your smart pads, whatever you use to follow the Word of God, and turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Isn't that graphic cool? No, 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 not that graphic. <laughs> that graphic. Josh made that. The mystery of his presence. a new series we're starting today. And uh, I applaud Josh on his... Artistic creativity. That's cool. Exodus chapter 33, verse number 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. To the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the bites." All the bite brothers. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. So much so that I might take you out on the way. Verse 5. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If it wasn't enough to say it in verse 3, he says it in verse 5. You are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've told me to lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider, remember, that this nation is your people. And God replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, him, "'Don't make us go up from here. "'How will it be known that I and your people "'have found favor with you unless you go with us? "'I and your people will be distinguished by this "'from all the other people on the face of the earth.'" By your presence. From Exodus chapter 14, All the way through Exodus 40, we see how God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And time and time again, God took care of them. But even with all the miracles God had performed for them, they continued to doubt His Word and His power. And one such episode was in Exodus 32, where Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God. And he had, was gone longer than the Israelites liked, and so they rebelled. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. They made an idol of a golden calf. And so as a result of that, we have this conversation of our text between Moses and God. And Moses says, remember, these aren't just my people, these are your people. So please, God, don't destroy them. So God says, well, okay, I won't, I won't destroy them but I am not going to go with you because if I do, I'll probably end up killing these stiff-necked people on the way. Have you ever wanted to kill somebody? Now, hopefully I'm not, you're not answering realistically, just figuratively. You know, I don't think Starla ever wanted to kill me, but she does remind me often that I have two faults. One is I don't listen, and the other, the other is I don't remember what she said. I can't remember what the other one is. Now notice Moses' response in verse 15. If your presence, God, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. In other words, if you ain't going, don't send me. Now, notice the depth of the statement about the priority Moses had about the presence of God. I mean, God, think about it. God offered to send an angel in front of them to defeat their enemies. He offered to bless them, to prosper them. He offered to give them everything that we desire. But Moses said, no, if I can't have your presence, God, I don't care about all the other things, and I don't want to go without you. So that brings up an interesting question. What if God promised, I'll give you a great marriage, good health, a good family, I'll make sure you're financially secure, and I'll even send an angel before you to rout all of your enemies so you don't have to deal with that dumb neighbor? (laughs) Would you accept that deal even if God said, but, but, I'm not going to go with you. Now, see, many people would say, hey, sign me up. Because after all, many people think that's why we serve God in the first place, to get all the things. But not Moses. Moses said, no, God, if your presence isn't going with us, I don't want to go. Here's the thing. God's presence is his purpose. His presence is the whole point of Christianity. The whole reason God brought Israel out of Egypt wasn't just because he was a good guy. But he brought them out so that his people would know him intimately. And by know, I don't mean know about. But I'm talking about know as in verse 11 says, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. You see, church, that's the goal. Personal, intimate relationship with God. And that's one of the things that makes Jehovah God different than the gods of other religions. Other religions focus on what the God wants you to do, rules you need to keep, rituals you need to observe. But the Bible focuses on knowing God intimately. Way back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, we see that God created Adam and Eve for one purpose, so that he could have fellowship with them. He didn't give them a list of rules and then say, Adios, amigos, live your life on your own, I'm out of here. They walked, and they talked with God, and they knew God personally. It's amazing in the Bible how the thing that housed the presence of God changed through the time. In the Garden of Eden, you have have his presence that walked with man in intimacy. And then here in our text, in Exodus 33, after man had sinned, the presence of God is symbolized by a cloud in the day and a fire in the night. Later, God's people eventually built a tabernacle, and the cloud and the presence of God rested in the tabernacle. Centuries later, centuries later, they turned the tabernacle into a beautiful, ornate temple. So much so that 2 Chronicles chapter 5 says the glory of the Lord so filled that temple that the priests couldn't even continue ministering. And then Jesus comes along, and he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus dumbfounded the religious of his day when he said to them, you can destroy this temple, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Well, of course, they laughed out loud at him. They said, it took 40 years to build this temple. How in the world are you going to build it in three days? Well, of course, Jesus Jesus wasn't talking about mortar and stone. He was talking about his body because he was saying the presence of God is no longer confined to a tabernacle or to a temple. The reason that I've come to this earth is so that the same presence that was a cloud, that was a temple, that was a tabernacle, now rests in my body. Jesus says, I am the living temple of God. Well, then Jesus says in John 16, John 16, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another comforter. And now the power of the Spirit of God that was inside of Jesus can so fill our lives that, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you can see the the amazing evolution of the presence of God in the lives of his children. Adam and Eve said that God walks with us. The people of the temple said God is in the midst of us. The people of Jesus said God is with us. And now you and me, people who are filled by the Holy Spirit, say God is in us. See, when, when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, we were cast out of the presence of God. And so since that time as a human race, we've yearned to be in the presence of God, to, to have him as our father and our friend. And that's why nothing can satisfy you for long periods of time. You may find satisfaction in pleasure. Perhaps you can find it in wealth. You may even find it in sin for a season. But eventually the new wears off and you're going to begin singing with the rolling stones, I can't find no satisfaction. (laughs) Because nothing can satisfy the yearning of your soul other than the presence of God who created you. That's what this is all about, God's presence being restored in your life. As a matter of fact, Moses said in Exodus, in Exodus chapter thirty-three, sixteen: 16, Hey, God, isn't it your presence that makes us distinct? If I go without you, Moses said, even with all the blessings, all this favor, and even with the angel that you promised to give me, if I go with all that, that is not what's going to set me apart. What's going to set me apart, God, is your presence. And church, that's what makes us distinct. Not simply what we believe or how we live, but by the presence of God in our lives. And so what are we known for in our Christian life? Are we known for communion and intimacy with God? Think about it. Most people, when asked to describe a walk with God, what do they do? They begin to talk about what they can do and what they can't do, what the social agendas they're opposed to, what the social agendas that that they support. Because to them, faith is a list of do's and don'ts. But do's and don'ts is not the heart of Christianity. Now don't get me wrong, when you encounter the presence of God, it demands change. There will be a lot of things that you don't do anymore. For example, wives, you won't beat your husbands near as much when you truly get the presence of God in your life. But the heart of Christianity is not a list. It's knowing God, and the deeper you know Him, the more it will affect your list. God wants a group of people who will love Him with all their heart and all their soul because He created us to worship and give adoration to Him. So that may bring up a thought in your mind. So where is, I mean, excuse me, what is the presence of God? Well, interestingly, there are a lot of people who make success synonymous with the presence of God. After all, if I've got it all, that must mean that God is with me. But you need to understand that success doesn't always mean that God's presence is there. I mean, our text plainly demonstrates that. God said to Moses, I'm going to bless you, but I'm not going to go with you. And so that means there's a possibility of having the blessings of God, but still being alienated from the presence of God. Now don't shoot the messenger, it's in the book. And let me also say that likewise, a gift from God doesn't mean the presence of God is necessarily with you. You may be able to sing like an angel or do business like Warren Buffett, but that blessing could be a decoy, and if it's not rained in, it could actually draw your heart away from God. So according to the text, it's possible to be possible to be very blessed, but live completely apart from His presence. So we need to check our motives and make sure that God is truly with us. Now, for a few minutes, I want to talk about a couple of aspects of the presence of God. You know, some people think that the presence of God is synonymous with weird or unusual feelings. You know, if you grew up in the Pentecostal church like I did, you were very leery about inviting your friends to church. I remember, you know, until I was about 16 and 17 years old, I said, Lord, why couldn't my dad be a Baptist preacher? <laughs> you know, they were socially accepted. They didn't call them holy rollers, you know. Then I got saved, but anyway. And so, you know, that's what people think. They think the presence of God is synonymous with weird feelings and, and, and unusual actions. And, and there are moments when the presence of God is so real that it will affect you physically. His overwhelming presence can be so real and thick that some people can't stand or move under his his presence. Or they end up dancing all over the platform. Can someone say Starla? (laughs) But then you find other people who who are believers in the sustaining presence of God. They believe that the physical manifestations are just for show, and it's only God's sustaining presence that will get you through the tough times. And so, people in the sustaining presence camp have a skeptical idea of the people who believe in the overwhelming presence of God. And people who are in the overwhelming camp, they feel that the people in the sustaining camp are just dead and dry and they don't know how to have fun at church. But listen to me, we need both. We need both. We must have the overwhelming touch of the presence of God. It wouldn't hurt my feelings if the mist of God's glory filled this place and we were so overwhelmed by His presence that we couldn't go any further with His service and we just had to stop and bask in His majesty. If there's anything the church in the world needs today, it is an outpouring of God's glory and His Spirit. But don't discount the sustaining presence of God. You see, because this is the presence of God. When Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. Even in your trouble, even in your sickness, even in your loss, I am with you. And his sustaining presence is what gives us the grace to be better husbands, to be better wives, to be better employers, and to be better employees. God's sustaining presence gives us grace to help us live an overcoming life in this difficult world. And so both are vitally important. But what happens is you see, you see people like Peter, James, and John. In Matthew chapter 17, they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. The glory of God comes down and Peter says in verse 4, Ah, this is good. We'll build a tabernacle for you, Jesus. We'll build one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we'll just stay right here and bask in the glory. So much glory, we'll get a suntan. You see, because people who encounter the overwhelming presence of God, they never want to leave. And I don't blame them, it's great, it feels wonderful. But Jesus taught us a lesson about the overwhelming presence of God. You see, because when the Mount of Transfiguration occurred and Jesus was caught up in God's glory, he did not stay there, he left the mountain to go to the city where people were hurting where people needed him. When the overwhelming presence of God comes, it isn't for us. God overwhelms us with his presence, and he sustains us with his presence, so we will know him intimately and be so full of his power that wherever we go, we are carriers of his presence. And the residue, the overflow of his power and grace in our life will affect everything we do. we are carriers of his hope because we have been impacted and transformed by the presence of God and so if we wanted to I mean how could we define his presence well Exodus chapter 34 verse 5 then the Lord came down in a cloud stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name the Lord The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. You see, the presence of God is is in the very definition of his name. God showed himself to Moses by proclaiming his name. So the essence of the presence of God is a firsthand, intimate, heart knowledge of the name of God, his character, and the immensity of his love. The presence of God is an understanding of his vast love, his greatness, his holiness, and his power. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you said, tell me about your wife... Okay. Starla Denise Schaefer, born on August 28, 1907. The doctor, <laughs> she looks pretty good for her age, doesn't she? The doctor who delivered her was named Fred. Her first boyfriend's name was Alfonso, who I've now killed. She went to school in Goaty and she has a scar behind her left ear. I told you about my wife, but see, all I did was scratch the surface. Now, if you ask me to tell, tell you about my wife and I tell you how, how much fun she is and, and how she knows how to say the right things when I'm down and, and that I know what she really loves and I also know what makes her cry, but I also know that if I tickle that scar behind her left ear, that she'll laugh. See, that is knowledge beyond facts. And there is a huge difference between just stating facts about someone and knowing them and loving them and desiring them. God wants his church to be more than a classroom where we just disseminate and dissect information and learn facts about him. God says, I want this place to be a sanctuary where you can experience me and know me and feel me because I am a tangible God who wants to engage in every area of your life. Don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to drive a red wedge between knowing the Bible and knowing God. Because the only way to truly know God is to know the Bible. But the problem is, is when we're so full of God facts that we're prideful about how much we know, but yet we really don't crave the God of our knowledge. We read the Bible, but with no real desire for its revelation of God. And since you guys aren't helping me preach, I'm going to really step on your toes now. That's the very reason so many people have those sins that so easily trip us up. That's why we have those besetting sins like gossip, lust, materialism, pornography, lying, and those nagging things that keep us from the true presence of God. We've been in church since we were kids, we grew up in Sunday school, we know all the facts about God in our head, but we've never had a complete transformation of our heart. We know about Him, but we really don't know Him. And there is nothing wrong with knowing about God. But we have to make sure that our learning is a means to an end, and the end is not just memorizing facts about God. The end is loving God and knowing God personally. Amen. I want our church to be a place of knowledge, but I also want to be known as a place where we have our minds full of the Word of God and our hearts full of the Spirit of God. See, if you have the Spirit without the Word, you'll blow up. But if you have the Word without the Spirit, you'll dry up. But if you have the Word and the Spirit, you'll grow up. God's presence is a firsthand heart knowledge of the size and the character and the attributes of who God actually is. Who the living God actually is. And it's a true understanding of the beauty and majesty of God in your heart. And that is his presence. Throughout the scriptures, you find evidence of the overflow of God's presence. Rahab said in Joshua chapter 2, 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land, talking about the nation of Israel. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. There was such a residue and overflowing of the presence of God on God's people that there was an awe and respect that followed them everywhere they went. Again, I ask the question, what are we known by? May God help us to be known as people who walk in such a presence of God that when we walk into our office on Monday morning, when we show up at our kids' soccer game next Saturday, when we walk into the store to buy groceries, people will sense that we are carriers of the overflow of God's presence. In Acts chapter 2, you find the same thing. The Holy Spirit came upon the church, and there was such a reality of the tangible presence of God on the lives of the New Testament believers that it impacted every place they went. And that's my desire for this church to be a place not only of sound doctrine, but to also be a place of the presence of God. So the question is how do we get God's presence? Exodus chapter 33, verse 7, it says that Moses would take the tent of meeting and pitch it outside the camp where he would meet with God. And verse 11 says that Joshua would not depart from the tent. So what do we see in the hearts of Moses and Joshua? An expressed desire in earnest and continual prayer. Moses continually went to the tent to meet with God, and Joshua refused to leave the tent. I mean, these two guys desire to know God face to face. You know, someone said the proof of desire is in the pursuit. In other words, if you, what you want is what you're going to chase. My mom used to say, if someone wants a bass boat, they're going to end up with a bass boat. If you chase your career, that's what you're going to find. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no problem with that. What that just means is you're going to go after what your heart really longs for. So more than anything, Joshua and Moses wanted to know God, so they took the time to be with God. But I just have to tell you, that's not going to work with me. Because I live today. We live in an instant world. Instant coffee, instant downloads, a microwave society. But let me tell you something, friend, that's not the way true relationships work. They don't develop instantly. The presence of God comes into our life when we seek his presence in earnest and continual prayer. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And that means that we need to arrange a daily place in our lives for God with enough time so that we can come into his presence. Amen. You say, oh man, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. Yeah. Well, okay. So you don't, you're not going to be able to come into the presence of God. Do you want him to go with you or not? Amen. The choice is yours. And then we also need to examine the nature of our prayer life. What do we pray? Do we spend the greatest part of our time asking God to fix our situation? Is that what we pray? Listen, if we have a true desire for His presence, we're going to spend more prayer time asking for God's presence than we do for God to fix our problems. Now don't misunderstand. I realize that some of you may be in pain right now. And if you are, it's natural to call on God to move on your situation. And the Bible says that He hears the cry of our hearts, and He wants us, as a loving Father, to bring our petitions to Him. But here's the thing when we take the time to get into the presence, well, when the Savior shows up, salvation is present. When the healer comes, healing is present. When the deliverer comes, deliverance is present. And so God may actually be giving us an opportunity in the midst of our pain to actually know Him more intimately. And so if you get bitter or angry about your situation, you just might miss the greatest opportunity for God to do the sweetest work in your life. And so if you let Him come into your life with His presence, He knows what you need really better than we do. In Exodus chapter 33 verse 5 the Lord told Moses tell the Israelites to take their jewelry off and I will decide what to do with them. You see their jewelry was was a symbol of false worship. And God was saying if I'm going to be with you, if I'm going to go, you're going to have to forsake those things that displease me. And so in order for you and me to get closer to God we're going to have to abandon the things He has forbidden. Now don't misunderstand, we come to Him just like we are. With our dirty, filthy rags, that's how we come to Him. But as we grow in His grace and holiness, then we will begin to pull things out of our heart as He deals with us, and then we'll lay them down at the altar as we bask in His presence. The next is chapter 33, Moses passed a very important test. He chose God's presence over God's blessings. The heart of Moses was hungering for the presence of God. And our aim and our focus should be to be the type of people to seek and keep the presence of God. You see, we need to make sure that our relationship with God is less about Asking for God's blessings and more about resting in God's presence. Less about seeking his hand and more about seeking his face. His hands are his gifts, that's what he does. But his face, that's who he is. Did you come to church this morning because you needed a Santa Claus or a genie to get you out of a jam? The thing is, God will be that for you because He hears the cry of your broken heart. And He is a good God. He is a God who blesses. But more than His hand, God wants you to know His name. He wants you to know His face. He wants you to know His presence. And we need to ask God to remove anything from our lives that's not compatible with His presence. And we need to declare that his presence is the greatest blessing that he could ever give us. Right. And that we refuse to go anywhere without him. When well, my daughter Cecily was just a little girl, I put her to bed. And there were times that when I'd start to leave, she'd grab me by both cheeks. Sorry. And she'd pull my nose to hers and look at me cross-eyed <laughs> and just start to laugh. And I'd say, sweetheart, what are you doing? She'd say, I'm just looking at you, Daddy. mm mm I miss times like that. And so as an earthly father, if I have that longing in my heart, How much more does our heavenly Father long for us to touch his face and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to feel your presence. God, I'm not just interested in your blessings. I want you. I want our church to be a place where God's presence isn't an exception, but the rule. place where the presence of God is so real that people's lives are changed. And when he says to go, that we will say to him, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go now.